not Miriam, not Maram.com, not Maram Bay, not Bishwashi, but just Maram. Welcome to your second recording for cardiology. I'm going to talk a little bit about acute coronary syndrome as well as VTAC and VFib. I'm going to skip over a lot of the basics since you can read that and cover it on your own. But I will point out some special pointers of things that we can use in the ER. So let's start talking about acute coronary syndrome. The presentation is great if it's sternal chest pain going down the left arm with diaphoresis, abnormal EKG, and elevated tropes. However, pay special attention to your atypical presentations, your dyspnea, your nausea, your vomiting, and your population as well. So your females, your patients with comorbidities such as diabetes, hypertension, strokes, heart failure. Also, your pleuritic and reproducible chest pain, which we see a lot of, is less likely to be ACS. However, make sure to always rule out that. When talking about EKGs, consider your serial EKGs, which could be done in 5 to 10 minute intervals, especially if you have a suspicious first one or, your, or something is just not right with the patient. You know your ST elevations in your, in, in your contiguous leads, but make sure you remember the progression of ST elevations. So think about your QTC prolongation, followed by your hyperacute T waves, and then your ST elevations. Make sure that you review your anatomic localization. So pay attention to the actual arteries as well as the leads that they concise with and what kind of a STEMI that suggests. So for example, if we're thinking of a posterior STEMI, we want to make sure we get a posterior in EKG. So your V7 to V9 are going to be very important. Notice your ST depressions in leads 1 as well as AVL. You're going to have R waves or tall Ts in V1 and V2, which is going to suggest a left circumflex or an RCA problem. Let's talk about bundle branch blocks. Review a lot of different EKGs and make sure you become familiar with what they look like. But I have a little mnemonic that's silly but helps me a lot. If you write out the words William Merrill, you can remember your right versus your left. So let's think of William. The first letter is W, the last is M. So W is going to correspond with, with V1, and M is going to correspond with V6. Now, marrow, your M is going to correspond with V1, and your W is going to correspond with V6. William is indicative of the L's for left, and marrow, the R's for right. Now, so in your left block, you're going to see a W pattern in V1, an M pattern in V6. Versus a right block, you're going to see an M pattern in V1 and a W pattern in V6. If I just confused you, which I most likely did, then just find me and I'll be happy to go through it. Let's talk about biomarkers. Troponins is what we mostly use, which are great, fantastic. But make sure you pay special attention to the actual hours of the initiation of the pain and how long it takes for the troponin to actually arise. Also, don't be fooled by other causes of elevated troponins, such as your dissection, your rhabdo, your just cardiac injury in general, your PE, your burns, your tachyarrhythmias, and your renal failure. Imaging. Chest x-ray is always fantastic, done in a couple of seconds, get it. Your echo. You could do a bedside one in a couple of minutes, which is fantastic, or you can go and get an official one if your patient is stable enough. Coronary CT angios, I think, are fantastic in your low-risk patients. These are the patients that we can admit. Thank you, Dr. Panchagar, and I can ask him for a CT angio. 
I always like to mention it. It's great. Management. So let's talk about STEMIs. STEMIs are great if you're at TGH. You can you have a patient, you stabilize them, you activate a cath lab, we have a great team and it's done. But what if that's not quite the case? What if you're in a rural ED and you don't have a cath lab available? So if it's gonna take you longer than 90 minutes to transport somebody to a PCI center, then go ahead and give TPA. Don't forget your aspirin. Most people say they take aspirin, but really what that means is a baby aspirin. Make sure that it, you remember that four baby aspirins are equivalent to 324. So go ahead and make up for the difference. Also, your Plavix load. Now, cardiologists, they're very different in what they like. If you have a cardiologist available and you're working at a center with PCI available, then go ahead and consult your cardiologist. The reason we, we like to consult them is it, sometimes it differs versus uh, by cardiologist depending on whether it's going to convert from just a regular PCI to an actual cabbage, which can cause complications. So go ahead and talk to your cardiologist. However, if you're in that role ED somewhere out there, then go ahead and do your Plavix load, which is 600. So your aspirin, your Plavix, TPA plus or minus, and then another important thing is your anticoagulation. If your patient is going for PCI, and go ahead and think about your low molecular weight heparin versus your unfractionated heparin. Your low molecular is going to be your 30 milligrams, then your 1 uh, milligram per kilogram every 12 hours, versus your unfractionated is going to be your 100 units per, pilgrim, units per kilogram, and then your infusion to keep that PTT between 250 and 350. Now, what if it's not so clear-cut anymore, so your end stemmies or something else? We used to go by the mnemonic Mona in medical school. Morphine used to be our first thing. We give it to all STEMIs. However, morphine, recent data and studies and all that great stuff have shown that morphine is actually not so great. It actually slows down the time of Plavix absorption as well as it decreases the actual active metabolites of it. So it ends up delaying and diminishing the effects of it. So it actually can lead to more adverse effects down the line. The second letter in Mona, O, oxygen, great if they're dyspneic. If they need it, then go ahead and hook them on oxygen. But not every single patient needs oxygen. Nitroglycerin is great. You could do 0.4 milligrams. You could do up to three doses. And then you can even start them on a nitroglycerin drip. Pay attention and make sure that it's not your inferior MI that you're starting that on though. Aspirin, your 325 or your equivalent of four baby aspirins. And then your Plavix, which we've already discussed, your 600 milligram load. Also, your anticoagulation is great here too. So you can think of your unfractionated heparin, plain old heparin, or your Lovenox. The Essence trial found Lovenox to be a lot more effective than unfractionated heparin in that it shows that it prevents death at 30 days out. Just be careful if you have a patient with reduced renal function. Remember your dosing for Lovenox, which is one mg per kg, sub-Q every 12 hours, versus your heparin is a 5,000 unit load than 1,000 unit per hour. Beta blockers should definitely be given within the first 24 hours, but generally that's not something that we do in the ED. Now what if you have an unstable acute MI? So think of your electrical complications. So what if you have sinus bradycardia or an AV block? Think of RCA lesions here. You want to always pay attention to your next management, which should really be transcutaneous or transvenous pacing. Now, what if you have VTAC or VFib causing that electrical complication? 
then think of your LAD, and then go ahead and start your ACLS. So reach for your amio and, uh, um, and other medications. What if it's a mechanical complication, so a cardiogenic shock? Go ahead and shoot for PCI and start aspirin. If you know that the patient has LV dysfunction, then reach for meds. So you could do your dopamine, the 15 mg per keg per minute, if you have a systolic blood pressure of 70 to 100. However, if your systolic blood pressure is less than 70, then go ahead and reach for norepi. You can also consider dibutamine in this case as well too. Remember your complications following a STEMI. So you have your free wall rupture, which can occur between 5 to 14 days after. Think of a hemopericardium, so treat as a cardiogenic shock, and then consider pericardiocentesis. And also think of your interventricular septum rupture, which can occur sometime between 1 to 14 days after. Fantastic. So now let's switch gears a little bit and talk about cardiopulmonary arrest. So the most important thing in this is going to be a well-disciplined team and a calm environment. Whatever code you run, that's going to be just number one, so keep that in mind. Cardiopulmonary arrest really talks about a triad of apnea, pulsesness, and unconsciousness. So I'm just going to cover again just a couple of main pointers to keep in mind for the sake of time. So if you have PEA, then make sure you cover your H's and T's. Make sure you go through each one in your head, in your own system, and make sure that you've at least considered it. Asystole is CPR, not shock. Sorry, Grey's Anatomy. You're fantastic, but you're wrong. Remember, if you have an ET2, an, an endotracheal tube, then you can only give epi, atropine, lidocaine, and Narcan. Don't let these floor nurses fool you otherwise. And then always remember, once you get ROSC, it's fantastic, but post-ROSC, I personally think, is harder than getting ROSC itself. you got to do that full workup and try and figure out what caused it. And then always consider hypothermia for neuroprotection afterwards. Now let's talk a little bit about VTAC as well as VFib. So when it comes to VTAC, the very first thing you'll always want to do is check for a pulse. If the patient has a pulse, then fantastic. If the patient does not have a pulse, then go ahead and start CPR. If the patient has a pulse, then you want to look and see whether the patient is stable or unstable and then manage accordingly. So if the patient is stable, then you can go ahead and reach for your meds. So amio is the first, even though the efficacy of it has been really questioned due to different causation of hypotension, AV nodal block, as well as QT prolongation. You can always try an IV bolus to prevent that hypotension. If your VTAC is unstable, unstable, but you still have a pulse, then you always want to synchronize cardiovert. Remember, you want to synchronize to avoid participating VFib, which is a whole new different problem. So how can you really versus another white compass tachycardia. For example, a paroxysmal SVT, which can show up with a white QRS and a bundle branch block. The answer is you really can't. VT is more likely with heart disease and it can have a fusion or capture beats, as well as AV dissociation. But really, seriously, are we really going to sit there and look at that? Or is that always very obvious? If you're unsure, just go ahead and treat as VTAC. So remember, you're unstable versus stable, which is which is what we talked about. Another thing for stable VTAC, which I forgot to mention, is your medications. So amio is our first, even though we really don't use it as much. Procanamide is becoming a first line. It's also a Rosh question, so you're welcome, guys. Let's talk a little bit more about VTAC. So monomorphic versus polymorphic. Polymorphic VTAC can be 
your sods, which is great because then you just treat with mag. But remember that not all polymorphic VTAG is sods. You can have other types. For example, you can have a bidirectional VTAG, which is usually seen with digoxin toxicity. Also, remember with VTAC that it has a wide choir, a QRS, but if your QRS is very wide and it's not as fast as your typical VTAC, then always consider toxic and met metabolic problems. If you go ahead and give amio for, for a patient who has a toxic or an overdose causing VTAC, then that's a clean kill. Always try calcium and bicarb. If it's that, then the QRS will actually narrow in front of you. If not, then great, continue what you're doing. Now what if you have V-fib? So V-fib, the number one, is going to be defibrillation. You can go ahead and start your CPR, you can go ahead and intubate and set up your IV and hook them to a monitor. All that is great, but it's all secondary to defibrillation. I'm not saying watch the patient until we get our monitors and we move them over and do all that stuff. Go ahead and start compressions and do everything else. But remember, your first line, everything is going to be rate dependent on that. So once you charge, you can go ahead and defibrillate. What if you have refractory VFib or refractory pulseless VTAC to CPR? Then go ahead and reach over for your amio. It's an antiarrhythmic class 3, but really works as all classes. Remember your ACLS dosing of your 300 followed by your 150. There's an ALIVE trial that showed that people with persistent or recurrent VFib, despite defibrillation and epinephrine, had increased survival once you used amio. Lidocaine is an option as well too, and it could be used if amio is not available, but really it's less desirable. Procranamide in cardiac arrest has less efficacy and limited use because of its low loading dose to therapeutic uh, levels. Now what if you have V-fib and you shock and it's resistant to that? Then this is where your dual sequential defibrillation comes in, which is really my favorite. Remember with that to always check your pacer placement so you can help your team and always remember that the paths should not be touching, which I've seen happen before. What if it's even refractory to your dual sequential? Then think of Esmolol to break up the electrical storm. Also, one last consideration before I end this is ECMO. It's a great option. Know when it's available to you, know how to get it, and know the indications of it too. Thank you so much, guys, for listening. We'll continue this next week.